3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah. 8.30am. Only double. Clap Good morning and welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, Shahrazad. You're on 3CR 855am and between uh, our last show and this show, we had a whole lockdown. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, it's now uh, Thursday the 18th of February. Um, and when did the lockdown start? On on Friday. Friday the 12th of February. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, I was so thinking it was going to go longer. So I know. I'm, I'm really glad that it's ended. Um but, you know, we all have to keep safe, keep checking that Victorian government um, health website, um, dhhs.vic.gov.au, um, for any updates and um, news about the new restrictions in place. Um, also, speaking of uh, things that have happened during the lockdown, uh, our 3CR subscriber drive is going. So we started on Monday, the 15th of February, and it goes until the 21st of February. And you can subscribe and support Radical Radio by heading to our website. So go to www.3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Um, or you can also phone in on 0394198377 and press 1 to subscribe. And, yeah, we'd really appreciate you, um, you know, uh, chipping in if you can or spreading the word about the subscriber drive to support Radical Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, uh, sub- subscribing is a really important part of keeping um, rad- uh, Radical Radio alive. And you also become a member. Um, and so the cost for subscribing is 35 for unwaged or concession, 75 for wage, and $150 for solidarity. Okay, so uh, we have a big show today. Uh, what do we have first? So first up, um, after the news, because Carly's going to call us in for that again, uh, we're going to hear a conversation that Carly had with uh, Wiradjuri traditional owners, um, Uncle Jade Flynn, Uncle Brian Grant, Uncle Bill Allen, and Arlia Fleming from the Elizabeth Evett Community Legal Center about the planned destruction of a sacred Wiradjuri women's site on Walu, or Mount Panorama. Uh, And then we'll hear a conversation with Jonathan Hempel who's a researcher for the American Friends Service Committee and the co-founder of the Database of Israeli and Military and Security Export, DIMSE, or D-I-M-S-E, dot info. He joined us to discuss the Israeli arms and security intelligence company's exports with a focus on Australia, and this comes after the launch on Tuesday the 16th, uh, of a Victorian research centre, a partnership between an Israeli-owned company, Elbit Systems, and the Victorian government. 
And finally, I speak to Dr. David Kelly, who's a research fellow at the Center for Urban Research, RMIT, and an organizer with the Save Public Housing Collective, who's going to join me to discuss the Victorian government's current consultation period for the development of a 10-year strategy for social and affordable housing, which opened on the 9th of February, and to explain the importance of maintaining and building public housing in Victoria and more generally. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. And we're back. Um, and now we're going to go to the news headlines with Carly. Hey, Carly, how's it going? Hey, Priya. Hey, Shahrazad. Hello. Yeah, it's gone good. <laughs> Let's get stuck into it. Perfect. All right. So, news headlines for the 18th of February, 2021. Job seekers in Victoria have been offered almost $2,500 to pick fruit. Victorian Agricultural Minister Marianne Thomas said that Pacific Islander programs were important to the success of this year's harvest, but that it was no silver bullet. However... Urban and regional planners have stated their concerns over the lack of housing in regional and rural areas to support temporary farm workers. Earlier this week, Labor Senator and Commissioner Patrick Dodson and Green Senator Lydia Thorpe called for the Prime Minister to meet with families of Aboriginal people who have died in custody. The motion in the Senate called on the government to fully implement the 330 recommendations made by the Royal Commission in 1991. The National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service are still calling on the community to sign the petition, calling on the Prime Minister to meet with families whose loved ones have died in custody. It is hoped that a meeting can still take place in April, the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. There's been a recent discovery of ancient Bogon moth remains at Clogs Cave near Buchanan on Gunai Kurnai land. Monash University, in collaboration with traditional owners from the Gunai Kurnai Land and Waters Corporation, excavated the cave for the first time in 50 years and found microscopic remains of bogong moss on a small grinding stone, believed to be up to 2,000 years old. It is the first conclusive archaeological evidence of insect food remains found on a stone artefact anywhere in the world. Gunai Kurnai elder Russell Mallet said that the Gunai Kurnai have Aboriginal history so have oral histories about eating the Mogon moth, but since early settlement, a lot of that knowledge has been lost. So it's exciting to use technologies to connect with old traditions and customs. Eleven new species of stygofauna were recently found in potential fracking sites in the Northern Territory. Stygofauna are invertebrates that have evolved exclusively in underwater ground, water. Some of the stygofauna that were found were small crustaceans enclosed within muscle-like shells, 
a new species of amphipod, a new snail and a new worm. Stragofauna have also been found at the Euralee Uranium Mine in Western Australia that was approved by the Federal Government in 2019. This study reinforces the importance of groundwater to inland parts of the continent where many plants and animals living in surface and groundwater um, are not yet to be documented. And that's all for news headlines for the 18th of February. Thanks so much, Carly. And while you're still on the line, I wanted to raise one more thing that has happened um, in the week that's just gone past, and that was yesterday's decision uh, by the government, uh, which just passed in the Senate, to effectively abolish the family court, um, which I think, you know, has obviously the family court is not perfect, but has been widely condemned. And uh, there's been a lot of concern around this. Uh, The Law Council of Australia on Tuesday published an open letter, which had been signed by uh, more than 155 stakeholders, um, you know, arguing against this happening. But um, the Morrison government managed to to strike a deal with uh, Pauline Hanson and Rex Patrick, uh, to end the debate last night and effectively abolish the court. So um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you got any initial thoughts about the sort of implications of this? Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, the implications will be will be wide-reaching, and I think that um, a lot of the advocates that were uh, pushing to keep the family courts opened um, were especially... Um, concerned about how this will impact survivors and people who have experienced family violence. Yeah, I think um, definitely something to keep an eye on and hopefully something we'll be able to bring you an interview about in the next couple of weeks because I think, um, you know, this is definitely not a clear-cut situation where the family court was perfect before. Mm. Um, Oh, no, absolutely. And um, Shahrazad? Yeah, and yesterday, just um, bringing this up, that yesterday um, was the well, anniversary uh, or a day that we should remember the 23-year-old Reza Barati who lost his life, sustaining multiple head injuries, on the 17th of February in 2014 in Australia's offshore detention centre in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, so just to remember that and that um, the offshore detention Detention centre regimes are still ongoing, as are all the detention centre regimes across this detention centre of a country. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Bria. Thanks, Sharazad. Have a good show. Oh, typical of a man in the Western system. Like, hello. You know, all stories might, may be important, but at the end of the day, Invasion Day, you can't compare that to the First Fleet because Invasion Day was the start of a dispossession, murder, massacres and the total annihilation of some people on a continent that had existed since time immemorial. So Scott Morrison, if he really wants to leave this country, he needs to shut his mouth in regards to those comments and really understand that Australia Day cannot be celebrated. It is a day of mourning for our people and they would not celebrate the Holocaust. You know, so I don't understand how that is any different than what our people went through because the genocide continues today. Like Scott Morrison really needs to take a step back and listen to the voices on the ground because he's really ignorant in my view. 
Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m., and now we're going to go to an interview that Carly did with Wiradjuri traditional owners Uncle Jade Flynn, um, Uncle Brian Grant, Uncle Bill Allen, and Arlia Fleming from the Elizabeth Evatt Community Legal Center about the planned destruction of a sacred Wiradjuri women's site on Walu or Mount Panorama. Today, joining me is Wiradjuri elder Yanhara Rambul, Uncle Jade Flynn, as well as Uncle Brian, Uncle Bill, and Alia Fleming from Elizabeth Evert Community Legal Centre to speak about the announcement of construction works on Walu, Mount Panorama, that will see the destruction of a sacred Wiradjuri women's site. So, first of all, um, could Uncle Jade, Uncle Brian and Uncle Bill, could you speak a bit about the construction works that are planned on Mount Panorama? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a simple equation. This is a recognised women's site, which is part of the complex of Wailu Mount Panorama. Council believe that they own the land and they've then given it to the go-kart club to build a, a go-kart track on that very site. Um, their intentions are to destroy the women's site without any further consultation. Um, they've put a schedule of work together, which is due to commence on the 8th of March. So when the 8th of March comes and they put a bulldozer in there to do this construction site, they will destroy a, an Aboriginal women's site which sits in line with what's happened to other Aboriginal sites across Australia. I mean, a good example is the Rio Tito Gorge, the, what's your gorge? Oh, uh, Jukin Gorge. Yeah, and then the trees down in Victoria. So there's no regard for the site. They believe they can destroy it because they own it. They don't own it in any shape or form. It's public land. And the, and the timing of the whole thing too is... Um is a week after the um, Bathurst 500, which is one of the races that they have up there around this time of year. And so usually the track is, the, the, the sorry, the um, McPhillamy Park, which is the area where where the um, women's site is in there too, um, that's usually closed off to the public while they clean up the area and, and mark out lines on the, in the um, up there to mark, mark out the campsites for people. So we, we don't have a problem with the, with the races and the camping up there, but this thing here what, with the women's site thing, is that's a, that's a permanent thing that's going to destroy the whole site. But um, so when, And when the races are finished, so usually a week after the races, it's still closed off to the public because of, they clean it up then after the, the campers have all gone. So, and it also coincides with International Women's Day on the 8th of March. Can you speak a little bit about the historical significance of Mount Panorama? Well, the Mount Panorama is actually the racetrack. So the mountain itself wasn't, wasn't called Mount Panorama. Um, when the Whitefellas came here in 1815 and uh, settled around the area, they called it Bald Hills and that sort of thing. So it's, that's what it's always 
been known as Bald Hills and even on the maps. But Mount Panorama is actually the racetrack that they built and that sort of thing. But for us, uh, Walu is the mountain itself. So, um, and the racetrack itself actually crosses, cuts across some of the, the song line for where they, where we, where we used to do our traditional pilgrimage to the place. But um, we, like I said, we can live with that because it's not a big impact on, on the whole, the whole complex of the place and that sort of thing. But when they start doing works up there that's going to destroy things, and they've already, they've already done things up there that without consultation or the proper processes and that sort of thing, um, that's, that's the issue that we have. And that's what we brought to their attention when, when they put an extra, when they put a DA in to expand the go-kart go track. Because we missed getting in on the first DA, but when they put the second DA in to to amend it, uh, that's when we jumped in then, and we've been we've held them up probably since um, since around 2016. So for the last five years, we've been um, been fighting that, but been more active around 2018. In the original concept, it was supposed to be a scenic drive, um, and that was honed around the top of the mountain. Now it's a public street in New South Wales. They shut down the public street to turn it into a racetrack. So realistically, when you think about it, that it's still a public street in New South Wales and used for the purpose of motor racing five times a year. And we don't object to that. I mean, you can't do much about the streets that are there to start with. But the scenic drive was part of the concept of people to be able to look over, over Bathurst and see what was there. It was just a casual drive. Um, the go-kart concept which was described well by Monica Morse, who's one of the councillors, to actually put the proposal forward because their idea was the fact that the go-karts would go in and out of the trees around that, that particular space, not to occupy like they've turned it into, a bitumenised official go racetrack. That was never the concept. That was the original DA. When they did the extension to turn it into a, an international model, it all changed. That's when we got involved in it. But Monica Morse has withdrawn from voting on it other than against it because her, her concept of the place totally changed. And so did the DA. Um, we have to remember too that Bathurst Council couldn't have approved the DA anyway, lawfully. So they sent all this stuff outside to Dubbo. So this changes in the, in the configuration of the go-kart track was determined by Dubbo Council because Bathurst Council couldn't approve their own DA. In the first stages, it was supposed, and this is what was flagged, that the go-kart club made the DA application. That's not the case. Bathurst Council always did this. So this whole concept is Bathurst's idea Bathurst Council's idea, which was ratified by Dubbo Council. It's about the legality and, and the morality of the whole thing that we're complaining about. And the thing is that we've, we've stated right from the beginning that uh, we were not against the go-kart track at all, of the concept of building a go-kart track. It's just the location where they want to put it. So it's part of the complex of Baloo. Um, it's part of the complex of... Um, of uh, 
uh, Wailu Mount Panorama, right, of where Aboriginal cultural heritage sites and that sort of thing were up there. And that's so, uh, yeah. So, Alia, can you speak a bit about how Elizabeth Evert Community Legal Centre uh, became involved in the fight to oppose the go-kart track? Yeah, so we um, are a community legal centre, so we cover the whole of the Blue Mountains out to Orange. And a couple of years ago, we participated in a cultural immersion uh, with the Wiradjuri elders out on country. And as part of that immersion, we um, were shown around the significant sites um, in Bathurst and uh, were introduced to um, the fight that the elders have been um, fighting for for some time, as Uncle Bill said. So um, I also do some work with Charles Sturt University and have had the privilege of doing a number of cultural immersions um, with the elders and with a lot of students um, and was taken up to the mount um, and it's, you know, it's really hard to put into words uh, seeing the elders on country um, and the spiritual connection that they have with the land. Um, it's, yeah, it's really indescribable. Um, and it's, it's just so appalling to us that the council would be so disrespectful um, to the elders. Um, it's 2021 and, um, you know, the NADOC theme for this year is Heal Country um, and, it's just, it's really time that, um, that non-Aboriginal people start listening to the First Nations people of this country. And there was a petition that went around. Um, can yep. you speak a little bit about that and the community support in general to oppose the go-kart? Yeah, so there's a local group that's popped up um, some time ago uh, called Save McPhillamy Park. So as the uncles were saying, it's actually a, a public um, area on top of um, Walu that was gifted to the community um, by the McPhillamy family. Um, so there is a question about whether the council actually has the, the right to be, um, to be using the land in the way that they propose. So there's a petition that people can find um, that's called Save Mount Panorama. Um, there's also um, a legal um, uh, um, fundraising um, uh, PayPal that the elders have set up um, and, you know, there's um, some kind of memes and different things that are being shared around on Facebook, um, mainly at the moment. Um, and we'd ask people to sign the petition, um, donate if they can to the legal fight, uh, as well as canvas local um, councillors, local and federal um, members of parliament as well, um, to show uh, that there is a groundswell of community opposition to this. Um, and there's also a lot of environmental and noise concerns that the Save McPhillamy Park people um, have, uh, have raised as well. Great. Thank you for that, Alia. And Uncle Brian, Uncle Bill, is there anything that you'd also like to encourage listeners um, out there to do ways well, um, that they can support this fight? Well, the thing with this too is that we have a lot of people come to the races and camp up there and a lot of pe those people have come here for years, and that you know. So, and they've got their own special campsite when they go there. And some of them have actually put plaques on some of the trees up there to mark down that one of their mates or someone that used to come there with them has passed away. So it's going to impact on that sort of side of things too. So the people, the motor racing um, supporters out there, particularly a lot of them come from Victoria, um, come up here and 
that's a part of the that's a part of the history of the place. Well, that's not even getting acknowledged, and that's not even going to be thought about because it's about building this go kart track to put it there. And the thing is too that, that it's not a commercial venture; it is just a private go kart um, track going to be run by the Bathurst Go Kart Club. So it's not open to the it's not open to the public. And at the moment they've only got 200 members. They say once the track's built, they'll have more and more members. But the end of the day is that um, the more, if they do have more and more members, that's more and more part of McPhillamy Park that's going to be taken up for parking. So they're going to drive everyone out of the place completely. And so, and some of the trees up there, like I said, have got parks on them, and they're actually earmarked to be cut down over the years, over the, over the next few years. They've got little discs with numbers on them and they're nailed to each of them every tree. They know exactly where the trees are <coughs> and they just cut them down willy-nilly. They've destroyed five this year and they've trimmed a lot of others. They say they're dangerous, but there's no recorded issue where somebody's been damaged by a falling tree on Miley Man Panorama. More than that, people have been run over there by hoons and whatever the rest of it, but, and, and hurt on the track, but the trees haven't done anything to anybody. Yeah, brain on a tree. And then remember too that all the trees in the women's site have those same discs on. They will be totally destroyed. As, as well as the land and as well as the um, flora there as well. And there's been a survey of the flora and find there are particular plants there that are not grown anywhere else within the Bathurst area. So... so so some, some of the vegetation is threatened, vege uh, threatened species vegetation and all that sort of stuff yeah. too. And the, somehow they got the approval from, from uh, New South Wales planning and all that to, to um, destroy about three hectares of uh, critically endangered, critically endangered lay, uh, box, uh, box grassy, wood, box, grassy right. box woodland. And, that. so, and it's very rare around Bathurst that there are some places of those left. And Wailu is one of those places and three hectares of it's going to be destroyed. So there's also a protest um, tonight that's happening uh, outside the Bathurst Council um, that Save McDillamy Park um, group have organised and there'll be some upcoming actions um, if people want to tune into their Facebook page um, that will be announced uh, there so it'll be good for listeners to have a look at that one. The surprising part about this is our local member, who's supposed to be here for everybody, has abstained from any further action and actually he ratified in his own words that he supported this stuff as well. So, I, you know, if you can't get support from your local member over a really key issue, I have some very doubts about what's really happening here, you know. And what's that local and member's the, name so that we can email and call him? Paul Turtle. And the federal member, Andrew G, has backed off completely. We've tried to speak to him, but he hasn't spoken to us at all. Um, the last time I spoke with Andrew G was at the, the races on Wildoo Mount Panorama. Three years ago. Three years ago, and he said, I'm with you all the way. But I guess LG, LBJ wasn't in there as well, so he hasn't been with us at all. The most we've got out of him is two free flags. One Aboriginal flag and one Torres Strait Islander flag. Uh, that's the support to us as well. Is why is Shirley a white woman? I've got another up there. 
and trying to talk in lingo when she's reading off a piece of paper. Oh, yeah, Why is that supposed to be an elder? Mm. He ain't come that way because of one of ours, our elders, betrayed our people. Just for a nunny. <laughs> and made it black. That's it. Why yeah. can't we all give me a word? And then more of the problems and every area will be solved. When you are, get a bun. What more can you ask for? Get a bun. This is what we all need to do. They got 200? I got 200 just on my own. That's it. <laughs> it's time to get rid of the marble. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Power in numbers. Um, that's one of our brothers who's, who's really fired up from in the community and that about this sort of stuff too, so... But you can see the injustice of the whole thing. And who he's talking about is people at the Bathurst Local Land Council who's supporting the, the, the building of a go-kart track there. And also standing there holding our rightful stuff that belongs to us. That's yeah, absolutely. And there's so much at stake. And I think well, yeah, during this interview, um, yeah, there's there's been expressed so many different ways that listeners can get involved from if you're if you have affiliations or if you're tied to racing, um, then definitely try and contact the organizations that you're involved with. Um, you know, contact those local members and federal members, you know, Dubbo area, um, Bathurst area and also um, yeah, there's huge environmental concerns as well. And so there should yeah. be support from a lot of environmental and conservation organisations as well. Is there anything that um, you'd like to leave listeners with? The bottom line is here. Once you've destroyed it, you can't replace it. You can't regenerate it. It's like all of those things that have been destroyed. The trees that have been cut down, the women's site up in Newcastle, the butterfly cave. The teardrop um, tree over Cara. All of those things. They're all destroyed. You can't replace them. There's no appreciation on the fact that this is sacred ground. This is as sacred to us as their churches are to them. Would they destroy their churches? No. Why destroy our sacred places in the same breath? This is our religion. Yinjimara is our way of life as Wiradjuri people. This guides us through our lifestyle and through our lifeline. The same as their religious guides them for their convictions. Take one away from them. And take one away from us, we all lose. Everybody loses here. And we all know they've been coming here for thousands of years, writing down what was happening here. The Persians, the Greeks. One other way. Our dreamtime story is, we don't come from the Rainbow Serpent. He only appeared when Nadi, the first woman, come. And the same is in the Bible, when Eve came. It's time for everyone to start if you black and you widow today, no money and go, sit down, or when beyond you, get up. Uh, Stand up. Yeah, right. You're right. We've got to get rid of them by simple. Sorry, sister. It's just that you're listening to the voice of the community. Not only the elders, this is the community. Yep. But I've been here since the word was put on paper with John Rutter. And all the other fellows really let them let let us fellows let those who with the law carry it and 
give us permission, please. Give us a green light. Yeah. And I'll bung them all up. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so How much. How are you going to put that there? <laughs> <laughs> That's the voice of the community. Not our voice. This is everybody's voice. Yep. Yeah. One yeah. of Maine, Gingy, Thank you so much. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having us. And thank Man you, Uncle. Yep. That's Manangu for you. And another way people can support is to get onto the Wiradjuri Traditional Owners Central West Aboriginal Corporation Facebook page, and there's info there. There's links there, um, there's ways to support what we're doing uh, to protect sacred country up at Wailu Mount Panorama. Great. Um, well, thanks for that, Uncle Jade, Uncle Brian, Uncle Bill, and also Uncle Bana. Thank you so much. And thanks, Alia, as well, for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Ali. Really, really appreciate it. Yep, you're welcome. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.32 AM. And that was a conversation that Carly had with Uncle Jade Flynn, Uncle Brian Grant, Uncle Bill Allen, and Arlia Fleming from Elizabeth Abbott Community Legal Center about the scheduled destruction of a sacred Wiradjuri women's site on Walu or Mount Panorama. To keep informed of works in pursuit of the go-kart track, follow Wiradjuri Traditional Owners Central West Aboriginal Corporation on Facebook. The construction works are set to begin on the 8th of March, 2021, which is International Women's Day. To support Wiradjuri traditional owners, voice your concern about the go-kart track by calling Paul Tool MP, who's a state member for Bathurst, on 02-6332-1300 and sign the petition created through GetUp titled Save Mount Panorama. Another Facebook page to follow for more information is Save McPhillamy Park No Carts on Top of the Mount. And just another reminder about the 3CR 2021 subscriber drive. Um, so we are once again asking for your support. Um, please uh, head to our subscriber uh, drive online on www.3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Or you can call in to uh, renew your subscription or to subscribe um brand new on 039419-8377 and follow the prompts and press one. Um, so due to COVID safe work restrictions, we are not accepting in-person payments at the station. So please feel free to ring our office coordinator, Loretta, to organize another option if cash is your only payment means. And to do that, you can call 039419-8377 and press one. Or you can post your details along with your check or money order made out to 3CR to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood, Vic 3066. A 3CR subscriber is a member of the station and therefore, sorry, and therefore has a say in what happens if 3CR, at 3CR and keeps independent and commercial free radio alive. Um, subscription amounts are $35 unwaged or concession, $75 waged, and $150 solidarity. Um, we really encourage you to subscribe to keep Radical Radio alive, and thank you so much for your support. Um, and we'll go straight into our next interview. Uh, and so our next interview is with Jonathan Hempel, who is a researcher for the American Friends Service Committee and the co-founder of the Database of Israeli Military and Security Export, DIM. Se dot info. 
He joined us to discuss the Israeli arms and security intelligence company's exports with a focus on Australia. And this comes after the launch on Tuesday of a Victorian research centre, a partnership between the Israeli-owned company Elbert Systems and the Victorian government. Human rights organisations and research reports have criticised Elbert, amongst other arms and security Israeli companies, for their involvement in the, op- in the occupation of Palestine and profiting off war. So this conversation is divided into two segments, and we'll listen to the first one now. Um, and so the local government in Australia and the state of Victoria formed a partnership with Elbert Systems of Australia, establishing a centre of excellence for human and machine teaming. So it was actually launched today, uh, Tuesday, the 16th of February. So could you tell us a bit more about Elbert Systems, which is based, the mother company based in Israel-Palestine, and which operates this wholly owned subsidiary in Australia? So yeah, Elbit, um, it's really important to say Elbit is for now the largest private Israeli company. Um, it's one of the primary suppliers of, uh, of the Israeli military and the world leader, of course, in, uh, in drone and military surveillance technologies. Um, it is for now, I think, the 28th. It, it, in 2018, it was the 28th largest arms producing company in the world, um, with a total revenue of almost uh, $3.5 billion, US dollars. Um, and 95% of them, uh, of, of that is from weapon sales. So um, it's one of the biggest, uh, in, it's the biggest private in Israel, but also one of the biggest in the world. It has facilities in the States, in Brazil, India, and um, also, um, of course, a subsidiary in Australia, like you said. So there are a few aspects, of course, in, in this subject. And I don't know if you want to elevate, like the one role that I want to talk about is the role, of course, of the usage of, of Elbit products um, by Israeli forces against Palestinians, against uh, other um, countries that are um, that have a border with with Israel, but also the other world is who are the export who are um, to which countries they are exporting to and how they're involved in other human rights violations all over the world. Um, let me know with, with what with what you want me to start. Um, yeah. You want me to start about the role in Israel and by Israeli forces, or? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good starting point yeah. as as the home country. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So, for, first of all, generally speaking, Israel. I mean, Elbit is one of the, like I said, it's one of the, it's a, the main supplier of um, of Israeli military, of the Israeli military, and um, also police actually. Um, and it starts with um, the. General, Israeli generals that are, that are leaving the military and are going to work for Elbit, of course. And it prides itself also on, on this knowledge of Israeli military and its ability to custom design and uh, its systems for the military's needs. And like uh, I think uh, most of our listeners know, they sell, they market it and sell it as combat proven. I say it like that, <laughs> as combat proven. And of course, they use it. Um, on in military operations that Israel is doing in Gaza, in the West Bank, Lebanon, and, and many other places. And Elbit describes them as, or the, the military, Israeli military operations have been described um, as Elbit's training grounds. I said, and uh, I could say that in a, 
in, in yeah in pre- uh, not parentheses in quotation marks <laughs> in quotation marks exactly so it's Elvis training grounds it's the field lab- laboratory it's a even they call it a sandbox um, and for where the company's newest weapons are used and tested and, and improved after that also. And so it also, um, yeah, as I, I talked about the marketing as battle proven, it's really important to say. And in the last several years, at least um, about 20% of Elbit's revenue is through sales to Israeli military and the other 80% from exports to the countries all over the world. And so we see the connection between the exports to the world and um, in this case to Australia and the connection to the to the usage um, in this region by Israeli military. And in the usage we have different, we have a lot of aspects. We have, of course, um, and it's really the big subject, the borders and the wall, the apartheid wall, um, like we call it. Um, and because of Israel's extensive experience in building separation walls and border walls, um, Elbit has become the world leader actually in border monitoring and surveillance technologies and even, and really building physical and virtual walls. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a lead contractor for the separation wall, the uh, apartheid wall, um, people call it differently here. Um, and of course, also in the border and in the Golan Heights to Syria, and also um, in, in newly in, in underground borders to Gaza, and they, build, they build an underground wall there. And the second thing that for me is one of the biggest, and I think also, I mean, we have um, Elbit is involved in all, like in every, um, I don't know how to say, extreme and. Um, Every weapon that you can think of that Elbit is, is producing and developing from small arms to, um, to artillery and of course naval ships and everything. But the killer and surveillance drones for me are, and for a lot of people are one of the biggest, um, and yeah, the, the flagship of Elbit. Um, and we have two main drone types. I don't know if it's important for the listeners, the Hermes and the Skylark. Um, it's important to know the names because um, they were really they used. I, I'm not sure that the Hermes was sold to Australia. There's no proof for that, but the Skylark was. Um, but in the Australia website, in the Australian website of Elbit, the Hermes is um, mentioned and it's giving there are a lot of details giving about it. But um, we don't have um, for now um, proof that it's, it was sold to Australia or was, is used in Australia or by Australia. Um, but the Skylark was sold, and the Skylark and the Hermes have a long history um, in Israel, in deployment by Israeli military in Gaza, in Lebanon, um, killing. I mean, I'm talking about killing drones, so it's not only surveillance drones. They are sometimes used as surveillance drones, but they were developed also to be operated as killing drones. That means attacking and shooting um, drones, and... I don't know if you want to go to numbers because numbers are sometimes so hard to, to understand, but um, it's, it's involved in the killing of um, thousands of Palestinians, um, mostly civilians, also kids and children. And also since 2009 and the first um, um, assault or war in Gaza and through 2012 and 2014, the big uh, um, wars that were there. 
Also in Lebanon already in 2006, the Hermes drone was used and was used as an attacking drone actually against Lebanese um, civilians and non-civilians. So yeah, um, we have, I mean, Elbit is involved in every um, conflict here in a lot of um, war crimes and, and crime against humanities. Um, I think I, I don't even need to talk about uh, um, aircraft, the other aircraft or the tanks or the, um, I mean, they're, they're really involved in every single part of a, of a military unit um, from the battle management systems to the um, helmets and um, surveillance systems. Yeah, sorry, I talked a lot. <laughs> no, 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 it's a really good overview. So what concerns our listeners, I guess, is this is uh, that the local government opened up this partnership. It's supposed to be a, a centre for research and they're going to partner with uh, universities and innovators, you know, all these fancy words. <laughs> Do you know of any similar uh, programmes or initiatives that Albert has launched research labs in other countries? Um, of course, there are a lot. I mean, um, USA and India, of course, it's, a, it's a, they're like the biggest customer. India is the biggest customer of Israeli arms. Um, but actually, it's an interesting and maybe some, I, I, I want to give a different example that no one thinks of when they think about Elbit and the arms trade. Um, it's actually Europe, the European Union. Um, and the European Union and I'm not, I mean, also, of course, uh, specific countries, but also the European Union as the, as the union. <laughs> um, they actually invest a, a millions um, in the last 20 years in research and innovation of, um, of arms and of security um, um, aspects. And they're giving a lot of money. I mean, they're working in close cooperation with Elbit, but also with in Israel um, Airspace. Israel Aerospace Industries, IAI, so also a really, really big company and security company in Israel or a weapons company. Um, and they give, they're doing also a lot of research and innovation together with Elbit and they're giving a lot of funding and budget into those development um, projects. But also after that, they a lot of times purchase the, 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 the technologies and products by themselves, also drones, for example. Um, and that's for militarizing the security borders in the Mediterranean Sea or um, to Turkey or um, more in the north. Um, so it's also, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing it for border security of the European Union, but um, with um, really terrible products and, of course, to prevent um, migrants and refugees to get into Europe. So they're also using those combat-proven technologies that Israel uses against um, Palestinians and also actually against refugees from um, Eritrea and Sudan. It's a different but They put also a wall on the Egyptian border to prevent migrants to come into Israel. Um, and they're using those this experience and knowledge um, in the same way um, to yeah develop their uh, security, their border security. Um, and Australia has a close connection with, I mean, yeah, I mean, Australia, that's, that's the first part, the development and research and, the, and innovation. It's always also a little bit harder, I think, to criticize because it's more about, I don't know, a different startups sometimes or it's just about research. Actually, also, there's a lot of proof about um, cooperation also with universities and academia. 
um, with Israeli universities that are um, cooperating with uh, weapon um, companies. I'm not sure in uh, what the situation in Australia is about that, like how this research projects are also connected to, to academia, and I bet a little bit less. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we have a lot of examples all over the world of, of a kind of um, institutions like that. Um, and I don't know if you know, but Elbit uh, um, um, subsidiary, like Elbit bought um, the company, the, the Department for Cybersecurity from NICE Systems and Cyberbit. And actually Cyberbit also opened uh, a cybersecurity training facility in Australia a few years ago already. I think 2018, that I can check. Um, so already some institutes are, work, are like open in, in Australia that are um, doing this kind of work. I mean, it could be training, it can be research and development, but yeah. mm. I hope I answered your question. No, you did. And it's, <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to look at how um, these companies might invest in, you know, what sounds uh, reasonable, like research and innovation, um, uh, at the same time they're uh, investing and profiting off war. Also, a few weeks ago, uh, as you probably know, but the UK Ministry of Defence awarded Elbit Systems UK a, a £102 million contract. And like you said, the company does not shy away from its ties to defence forces around the world. And so I guess you kind of already answered this question, so maybe I shouldn't even ask it. Uh, so could you expand on Elbit Systems' ties with military around the world, but maybe not just concentrating on Elbit Systems, but more broadly, different... Elbit products to the world. Yeah. Of course. Okay. I didn't say it. Israel is um, by this, the Stockholm um, Research Institute for uh, Peace, Cypri. Um, the number eight in 2019 was the eighth largest... Um, exporter of arms all over the world. Um, and Cipri doesn't have all the information, so we don't know the exact numbers, but it's in the top 10. Um, so Elbit, uh, and I'm telling, I'm, I mean, there's, there are few countries, I mean, there are no, I, I, I don't know, the name is again. We, it, we didn't even, like, Elbit doesn't, or not Elbit, Israel exports to countries that um, other, um, that the EU or the UN has, have uh, arms embargoes. Um, like, sorry. That, uh, yeah, they declared arms embargoes on those countries, and Israel continued to sell them. So we have countries like um, Rwanda and Myanmar and Sri Lanka and um, Azerbaijan, and we have a lot of countries that Israel sold um, weapons and arms um, during genocides, during conflicts, um, or was involved in actually in massacres and genocides, like Israeli arms were involved, of course. Um, and Israel is not alone in that. A lot of countries um, sell, uh, are selling arms to terrible um, places and terrible governments and um, militias, but... Yeah, and Elbit is a big part of that. I mean, Elbit sold the drones that I talked with you about uh, to Brazil and to India. And um, Azerbaijan military has a history of committing war crimes uh, against civilians and using Elbit uh, drones. They were sold to Chile, um, with, which has used them for surveillance of indigenous um, population. And... Honduras uh, in 2018, 
Um, after um, security forces killed at least 22 people in mass protests, they used the, so the, the drones and bought the drones of Elbit. Um, we have Mexico, Colombia, and of course, a lot of countries are using the drones in, in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And actually also Australia used Israeli arms, um, but we can talk about it later in Afghanistan. Um, and I'm not even talking about the cyber security thing. Maybe we can also talk about it later because it's also one of the, the, the aspects that are um, developing and um, specifically in this Israeli-Australian uh, relationship. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, I told you a few examples, but um, Elbit actually bought um, a few years ago, uh, I think 2018, the um, company IMI, Israeli Military Industries, um, and it was the, the biggest um, arms um, uh, production I mean, company in Israel um, that is developing tanks, I mean, the basic military um, systems, so tanks and guns and um, artillery systems. And since Elbit bought it, um, we need also to to think about what they produced and who they sold them to. So we have, we have also, of course, Argentina, Romania, Switzerland, and countries like that but um, yeah um, so it, it's giving a, an, another um, I don't know another huge aspect into because since this uh, acquisition um, we need to talk about really basic um, um, aspects of, of arms that Elbit is now also involved in um, yeah I hope it was not too I, I hope it was clear this, this last part yeah. But IMI is a really huge thing also. Featuring world-changing documentaries aimed at inspiring a better world, this year's Transitions Film Festival covers themes of art, activism, climate change, social innovation, epic architecture and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, available virtually from February the 26th to March the 15th, online and nationwide. The Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. So we left off the discussion with Jonathan Hempel, who's a researcher and co-founder of the database of Israeli military and security export, dimse.info. And he was talking about Elbert's reach in the arms industry and where rep weapons and drones are sold. Next, Jonathan will discuss uh, the Israeli arms and cy cybersecurity industry within the military industrial complex expansion around the world. So we'll just go back into that conversation. Well, maybe you could expand on that and perhaps you, you briefly mentioned cybersecurity. Uh, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe we'll need to have a whole another conversation on cybersecurity. <laughs> but, you know, all of this forms a kind of a, 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 what people call, like, as you know, a military industrial complex. So because your organization or the database tracks arms exports and within those arms exports, yeah. I think you include cybersecurity. Right, like NSO group and that sort of thing. So I thought maybe you could give us an overview of the database and the Israeli companies, uh, plural, uh, expansion mm -hmm. 
around the world, you know, within this industrial um, complex that's, you know, yeah. uh, booming. <laughs> of course. Um, okay, of course we have, I mean, that's exactly what, what is our aim. We want to, we don't have all the companies, of course. We, we just started, we worked on it for a year now, and we're happy with the, with what we now publish, but we, of course we continue. There are a lot of companies and a lot of projects and, um, this industrial complex and this whole subject is huge. And, um, and of course, the Israel, like the client, Israel's client also would rather not make any of this public. So it's really hard to work. Israel is not publishing. A lot of other countries are also not transparent about it. And, and the new sense, I mean, we have countries in the database from, um, of course, NSO, like you already mentioned, but, um, to, any vision that actually is also involved has um, some um, partnership in Australia. Um, and we have, of course, the big companies, IAI and um, Elbit and Rafael, that are the, the most famous uh, arms companies in Israel. But we also actually, we, we try to look at cybersecurity as a new development. I mean, it's not so new, but we try to focus on it. And we have companies like Candiru and Circles and um of course, NSO and Anyvision, NSO and Anyvision, um, that you try to look, and, and that's the most important, like the most difficult to, to to see facts and to see to see really deals because there are no arms, like there are no, it's no one's publishing. We made a deal with NSO, so we're using, of course, the work of Citizen Lab in Canada that's um, published a lot of information about um, the operations of NSO all over the world of the NSO spy malware and Pegasus and also the new one during COVID and um, I think Fleming is the name yeah Fleming and so we look into that we, I mean we have um, cybersecurity Israel is using all this inf- all this knowledge and experience that it's using in his intelligence units in the army they taking those um, um, young soldiers directly to startup companies that actually have also the, some, a lot of times to hold the the same, um, I would say the same organization system. I mean, their, 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 their companies are built in the same way the military units are built with the same structure, with the same, um, culture. I mean, working culture and, um, and, and of course using this technology, using the experience and, um, and cybersecurity, it's a whole new thing. Of course, surveillance and cyber attacks and, and cyber defense, but, um, yeah, like NSO and, uh, and Anyvision, I don't know, I said the name, but Anyvision is uh, producing and developing uh, facial recognition technologies and is also working all over the world from Hong Kong and, and Europe, but also now, um, in 2019, Australia announced a strategic partnership with, with Anyvision. Um, just that you know, I can send you the link. <laughs> Um, also, we found it, of course, in media. Maybe it's also known. Um, so it's scary. I mean, um, also those spy malwares that that are uh, that Facebook and WhatsApp are now also suing in the states and um, NSO, but also facial recognition te- technologies that are really um, dangerous and are. Um, it's proven already that they um, that they um, that. People of color, for example, are um, discriminated through technologies like that. And, hard, and important to say about Anyvision, for example, that Anyvision um, and the reports about that and actually also 
proved um, that they worked in the um, Palestinian um, occupied territories against Palestinians. So Israeli, uh, Israeli forces were using facial recognition technologies without, um, I mean, without the, the, the um, victims knowing against Palestinians on checkpoints, but also inside the, the territories. And we don't know if they're using it also against Israelis. We have, we think that they, they are using it, but we don't have any proof about that. So they actually also now uh, caught, um, the, the, the human rights, human rights organizations in Israel try to understand now if it's, they are using it all over Israel and Palestine now. Um, yeah, so that's just a small example of one company, but, um, of course, Elbit runs a whole security training facility in Australia since 2018, the Cyberbit security training range. Um, and they having a lot of meetings with cyber security officials um, from Australia. They actually, in 2019, Australia and Israel um, signed a memorandum of understanding on cyber security cooperation. So I, I actually, yesterday when I was preparing for this talk, I saw that in, in, in the summer of 2020, there was a huge event in cybersecurity um, cooperation um, online. I actually found it on Spotify for some reason, so they're really not hiding it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and that was not only official, so I, I'm not sure that there was there were some interesting companies involved, but they're trying to, to develop this cooperation really, really, um, yeah, in a strong way. Well, I think firstly, listeners will probably want to know a bit more about the cybersecurity uh, meetings uh, in 2019 and the Israel-Australia partnerships. Do you have any um, information as to uh, why these partnerships are happening now? Why are they happening now? Yeah. Good question. I mean, um, I think, I, I mean, it's a really huge subject, so... Of course, now um, I'm, I'm not sure you're not talking. You're not talking especially about COVID, but about the last few years, right? Because COVID also changed a little bit the the, the su subject, and a lot of, of countries, um, especially Israel, are using surveillance systems in with reasons of uh, of fighting COVID or fighting the, the pandemic, um, and that, I mean, I think I think in the last years, if we put COVID on the side. I think a lot of companies um, understood the strengths of a lot of governments, <laughs> the, the strengths of of, um, of those spy malwares. Um, of course, cybersecurity, defense, for years, kind of like people are talking about it, and it's a huge uh, subject of the hackers and the the, the threat um, in quotation marks of, of hackers, and um, a lot of countries try to, to develop cybersecurity defense um, systems. But I think a lot of governments also saw the strength of, of using spy malware that they can just put in a smartphone and they have all the information about, um, about journalists, about um, human rights defenders and um, dissidents. And, yeah, and we have it actually. I mean, also, I'm just saying something that I saw in the media. Um, it's not an, an independent research, but NSO groups, and Pegasus was also reported to be used by Australian forces. So I'm not sure if they proved against who, like how they used it, but I mean, for a fact was used by Australian forces. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, if you see Saudi Arabia, the, the whole, I mean, Pegasus is only one example, but um, I think the governments now see how easy it is to use this uh, companies and, and systems and without taking responsibility after that, because then they say uh, it's not our technology or most of the times no one knows that they used it. And you have the example of Mexico also and Morocco and where Citizen Lab, the Canadian Research Institute already showed how they used it against journalists and, and human rights defenders. And yeah, and you have, of course, the killing of the Saudi Arabian and the Washington Post journalist. Yeah, so yeah. Um, as we know, and as you've mentioned, we know the same companies who sold their wares to militaries um, involved in war, uh, predominantly, mm-hmm. predominantly in the Middle East recently, but uh, also the same companies lobbying and selling the surveillance technologies to patrol borders, uh, thereby aiding mm-hmm. preventing uh, people fleeing the wars that they are involved in. And you mentioned this. Um, and we saw this in the EU alongside EU arm manufacturers as well, such as Airbus and um, Finmeccanica, I think, in Italy, Tal in French, in France, uh, Indra, Spanish, I think, and Safran, mm-hmm. I forgot which company, uh, but it's an EU, um, the EU companies, and mm-hmm. they're making profits from both wars, and then also profiting from securita- securitizing Europe's border from the re- yeah. from people fleeing the wars. And I know mm-hmm. you spoke a lot about that, but I just wanted to draw the links with EU arms manufacturers that are doing the same things, and uh, the EU and these Israeli companies that also lobby the EU for uh, exactly you. the same thing. And we do know... I can, I can give you a small, oh, yep. a small yeah, anecdote please. about that. Just, I, I researched a little bit. I was in, in Greece on the, again, islands and working with refugees. And actually, after that, I researched a little bit and I saw that um, a lot of Palestinian um, refugees from Gaza are, get, are trying to get to Europe, to, to Turkey, and then yeah, in Greece. And we saw that, of course, they're... they're um, they're trying to escape and they're trying to get to Europe from different reasons, but one of them is, of course, the siege on Gaza and the occupation. And um, and then we saw that Israel is selling a lot of drones to Greece and to the European Union to get, to give them, like the European tries, of course, to prevent them to, to come to to European borders and doing, of course, uh, crimes against humanity as pushbacks and and letting refugees um, to die in the sea. And yeah, it was for me like a really terrible irony of Palestinian refugees from Gaza are getting there because of what Israel is doing um, in the region. And then Israeli drones and um, other surveillance systems are trying to prevent them from continuing to Europe. So it was like, I don't know, this circle was um, disturbing in my, like, in my, my, in my opinion. Mm. Um, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just also going to add to that, that Australia, um, the former conservative Australian uh, Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, um, I think Mm -hmm. in 2014, well, anyway, before 2016, it was, uh, I think around 2014, um, went to uh, EU to promote 
uh, Australia's border security measures, which, because you mentioned the turnbacks, and that was Australia's big mm-hmm. um, uh, success, human human rights catastrophe success um, that they were promoting to um, EU uh, policymakers and lawmakers um, as a uh, quote unquote um, good deterrence measure. I mean, Australia is also it's really. I mean, I think, of course, you know already that they're trying to militar, militarize the security borders. Also, um, <clears throat> I even I don't know. I read um, in the past that they're trying to even militarize with like the the environment, the climate change, um, and the struggle against the climate change. They're trying to militarize that with some excuses of. Um, yeah, also preventing, of course, at the end, the migrants that are coming to Australia because of climate change are trying to now, I mean, yeah, it, I mean, we have so much um, circles in this area that are so, I don't know, yeah, terrific <laughs> in my opinion. Actually, also, we now notice that um, that a lot of mining companies are starting to, to cooperate with Israeli drones, and it's also an interesting um, development. Um, yeah, I, I saw that on also, the website. Yeah. Can you can you expand on on the links I mean, with the mining company? It was not my focus. Actually, I can I can add, I mean my my colleague is now um, uh, it, she has like, she's um, not working for the t- next two months, but I can ask her. I, I, I know that she was working on actually also on an article or something more um, deep into this subject of militarization of. Um, of, of, yeah, of industrial or mining in the industries in Australia, actually. Um, so I know, I don't know, we, we have this very company, Aerobotics, that is no, that we know that they, they are a customer of the mining company South 32 in Australia. But we also have like the mining company BIS that, um, announced a, ju- a joint venture with, with an Israeli, um, arms supplier, IAI, that I mentioned before. And they try to, they want to now develop uh, autonomous systems for mining operations. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting development. I don't have, I mean, I didn't, it's not my subject so much, but I know that a lot of, of human rights and, and a lot of researchers are now starting to, to look into the militarization of, of that, of, of, yeah, of industries, um, that are hurting the environment, but also some, um, climate change um, or a new new energies that are also trying to military, like study to militarize uh, industries. So we have it in all directions, I think, to militarization. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. um, uh, what do you call it? Upgrading of these um, yeah. military com- uh, these arms manufacturers, um, and yeah. a, so, sort of like this, this capitalist accumulation <laughs> and I guess last question um, if listeners mm-hmm. want to find out more um, about uh, the database or more about mm-hmm. this information how can they do so and so about of course the database you can go into um, the database it's online now it's d-i-m-s-e dot info um, of course we're working on it so um, I mean we for now, updated to we, we worked on the years 2000 to 2020. We have almost 50 countries, and of course, a lot of arms and weapons and um, syst- uh, uh, arm systems. And we have information about the companies. Um, but I can also recommend um, about Elbit, the, um, the um, platform Investigate, um, also from AFSC. 
So you can just Google it, see about Elbit and their um, involvement in, in, in occupation, in crimes against um, humanity, in border surveillance, um, in the wall and checkpoints in Palestine that I talked about, and of course in different weapons and military equipment. Um, so I think the combination of both, um, you can see in our website where Elbit is, um, um, where the, the products of Elbit are um, purchased to and delivered to in the world, and the different um, products themselves, and how they were used in by Israeli forces. But you can also look into um, the other platform, investigate to learn a little bit more about the investments of uh, about the economical, but also about the involvement in in, uh, in human rights violations. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Um, and we'll have to get you back on so we can talk a bit more about um, cybersecurity. Because uh, also, it's funny you <laughs> mentioned um, Morocco. I was, yeah, I was in, I was in Morocco talking to a few journalists, and w- when I was there, mm-hmm. they, they were talking about NSO group, but it was main. It was it was before Omar Radi was uh, arrested. Yeah. Um, yeah. it was with oh, these two lawyers that had to go to Europe. Um, but yeah, they were using that same technology before even Omar Radi was arrested. Uh, f- I think a few yeah. Months, yeah, <laughs> before that as well. I mean, Morocco is also, I mean, that's why I'm, I really recommend you to go into our website because Morocco, for example, that now, um, if, if, uh, I don't know if everyone knows, but uh, Israel and Morocco, with the support or with even the push of the United States and signed a normalization um, and deal and agreement. And actually Morocco and Israel have close cooperation for years now. It mm. was of course hidden and they have also military relations for years. Actually two years ago already Netanyahu was invited for a secret visit, but at the end it didn't happen. Um, but a lot of arms were sold to or were delivered to in Morocco um, for years now, from electronic warfare to communication systems. And, um, yeah, so it's not, I mean, it's always interesting to see the, the normalization process happening, but, of course, it has always um, a context. And mm. here it's also interesting that Israel is using, I mean, Israel sells weapons to, or is is planned and to sell more weapons to Morocco that are using them also in the Western Sahara. Yeah. And, and they didn't, they don't hide it. I mean, the drones, the Heron drones, that's a different from IAI, from the second company that I mentioned, they're transferred to France, to Morocco, and they're going to be deployed in Western Sahara. That's also an occupied territory, as a lot of um, human rights um, organizations um, say and define it. So it's also, yeah, I mean, we can choose every country that you want and we will find an interesting story of of um, involvement. And, and and I don't try to say that Israel is the only one and Israel is the, needs to be the focus, but we always need to see about the, like to think about the arms trades and the conflicts and how they're, and of course, cybersecurity and environment. And we just need always to continue to ask questions and to fight against it and, um yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And to see where the money moves <laughs> as well. Yeah, and also to, yeah. yeah, to talk about it. And I think always if, um, like, like reporters and journalists like you talk about it and it's, it's important. It's an important pressure on, on governments to not buy arms that will harm people or that will be used or 
for example, not um, agree to, to new surveillance systems to be employed by governments, because if you give one uh, surveillance system the, the agreement to be used, it's like you cannot and you cannot you cannot go back. So it's really important to fight against um, yeah also this new surveillance technologies mm-hmm. and and also try to see like what where was the weapon what, where's the weapon coming from how was how was it used who is selling it who is making the profit yeah I think it's important yeah so much and not only about Israel but about everyone. <laughs> yeah, especially as we move to um, a more borderized and securitized world, yeah. <laughs> especially after COVID yeah. or like during COVID because it's still ongoing. Yeah, and yeah. actually also you can see also in our database how Australia is actually using the Israeli arms um, in their um, in their units. Um, I mean we don't we don't write okay um, this uh, airplane was used against this attack but we try to to show which units it was used and or is used and um yeah i mean you all know um how, what like the involvement of australia and afghanistan attacks on civilians and to uh, think of israeli weapons even involved in that is also i don't know it's always interesting mm, yeah <laughs> to see the oh, thank you so much for joining us <laughs> And that was Jonathan Hempel, who is a researcher for the American Friends Service Committee and a co-founder of the database of Israeli military and security exports. And now we're going to an interview with uh, Dr. David Kelly, who's a research fellow at the Center for Urban Research at RMIT and an organizer of the Save Public Housing Collective, who joins me to discuss the Victorian government's current consultation for the development of a 10-year strategy for social and affordable housing and to explain the importance of maintaining and building public housing. Hi, David. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, glad to have you on. Um, so before, uh, you know, before the announcement of this new build uh, last year, we interviewed your colleague, Professor Libby Porter, about the Victorian big housing build. Um, and for listeners who didn't catch that interview last year, could you give us a brief overview of what the big housing build is and maybe how it relates to this new uh, 10-year strategy? Yeah, sure. So, um the 10-year strategy is basically building on the big housing build. Um, so the big housing build, as it stands now, has four components. Um, two of them are starting now, and two of them are to start in a kind of nondescript future time um, that we don't actually know about yet. But the ones that are starting now is about $1.5 billion put into um, – one is a renewal program, and the other is um, – is a, basically a $1 billion payment to uh, private developers. So half a billion is going into expanding the current renewal program of the government. So what that entails is taking six uh, inner-city public housing estates, uh, knocking down the public housing that exists on them estates, and then rebuilding a configuration of community housing and private housing. Um, and so there'll be 100% loss of public housing on those estates. Um, what social housing will be uh, will exist post-renewal will then be given to community housing providers to, to own and, and or manage. And then a significant portion of that will be given to the private sector um, for developers to basically sell on to private homeowners. Um, the second part is $1 billion, what they're calling a 
buy out or they're bringing forward private housing development. So this is basically $1 billion is given to private developers who are unable to sell properties during COVID. So if they had a big housing development that they were running pre-COVID, COVID comes in, all of a sudden they become economically unfeasible to sell all the units. The DHHS will then buy those units off the, the uh, private developer and then give them to community housing to own and manage. So that's what's happening now. Um, so only about $1.5 billion is actually being spent now instead of the stated $5.3 billion. The rest of it is nearly $4 billion, which is kind of broken up into two sections, which is one is to expand the Social Housing Growth Fund. So what they're going to do is give $1.38 billion to in capital grants to community housing providers so that they can then kickstart their own development projects. And then $2.14 billion will be used to, um, I think that the $2.14 billion is the price that they put on the government land that they're going to give to private um, and community developers. So it's basically um, a very convoluted and complex way of saying that for all of this, um, money that they said they're going to spend, actually very little of it is going into funding um, social housing and zero of it is going into funding public housing. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that um, overview uh, because I think it really sets the, the stage for, um, you know, how complicated the process is um, and how little information. I mean, I was I was looking at the the consultation uh, discussion paper that on the 9th of February was released by Victorian Minister for Housing Richard Wynne, which is seeking feedback from the community on the development of a 10-year strategy for social and affordable housing in Victoria. Um, and as you've mentioned, uh, you've already touched on, there's a differentiation between public, community and affordable housing in that consultation paper. So could you take us through some of the differences between these? Yes, sure. So this is where it starts to get a bit convoluted, but um, I'll try to make it as simple as possible. I think that there's actually a bit of a method that the government use here in making it complex so that it's very hard to understand where the shifts are, are coming from and where the displacement of people is coming from. So public housing is what I advocate for and what other researchers and experts advocate for. And a public housing dwelling is owned and managed by the government. So this might be DHHS, the Minister of Homes of Victoria, but the government owns and manages. Um, the rent is capped at 25% of a tenant's income, and it's unconditional access, it's secure tenure, and a prioritized people in the greatest need. So typically, the people who end up in public housing are in the bottom 20% of income earners in Victoria. Then the next tier up from that is community housing, and so this is units that are managed and or owned by private, non-profit community housing organizations. In community housing, a tenant will pay 30% of their income in rent. Um, the tenure is less secure. And only 70%, 75% of community housing dwellings are allocated to those who are in greatest need. So community housing captures the bottom two quintiles of income, so the bottom 40% of income earners. Um, there's a bit of ongoing debate, but we're fairly certain and have got legal advice that 
if you live in community housing, you're not protected by the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. But if you live in public housing, you are. So, in effect, you have human rights if you live in public housing. Social housing is a term that captures both community and public housing. So it's an umbrella term. So social housing in international context means public housing often. In in Australia, it means public and community. And then, to complicate things further, on top of that, you have affordable housing, which is really hard to capture. Um, I think that if you ask 100 different people what affordable housing is, you get 100 different answers because it's very undefined. So in, uh, I think, 2019, the um, Environment and Planning Act was changed to explicitly include affordable housing. And what it said was it includes very low, low and moderate income earners. So that's the bottom 60% of income earners in Victoria are targeted for affordable housing. But there is no way of telling what affordable is. So the rule of thumb that government and developers often use is 80% of market rent. And 80% of market rent is not affordable by very many standards, especially for people who earn bottom 60% of income earners. So it doesn't really stack up there. And then when we look at some of the renewal program sites um, in Northcote, in Walker Street in Northcote, the affordable housing component um, was basically what they're doing is this is coming from MAB Corporation, who is the developer leading it. They said that they're going to put affordable housing units on the market six weeks before the general release of units. So if you're an affordable housing seeker and you want to buy a house, that's 80% of market. You have six weeks to do it. After that six weeks, it will revert back to market rent or market price. Um, And, of course, once it's sold by the first person to own it, it then becomes affordable again. That is, I mean, thank you for taking us through those uh, differences because I was just thinking, you know, that that is really ridiculous, the sort of um, the convoluted nature of this. I'm sure, you know, this information is is pretty difficult to, to parse if, if you're not somebody who, uh, well, if you, if you are a low-income earner who you know, doesn't have their time to, to, to look through all of these options really comprehensively and if you only have six weeks to make that decision about affordable housing, you know, that doesn't give you much time to weigh up your options or, um, you know, even carefully consider that kind of thing. And um, I think it was important that you brought up the fact that uh, in community housing, there is um, effectively no human rights charter protection. So, you know, these these sorts of concerns are the things that we don't really hear about um, when we when we hear the proposal from the government that they're going to expand affordable housing and and social housing um, as if they are creating a a public good for those in in greatest need. so um, we're going to have to wrap up shortly, but um, before we do, um, do you think that this draft strategy shifts the balance further in favour of community housing at the expense of public housing, and what are some of the concerns with this? Yeah, so it's it's difficult to say what the detail is at the minute just because they haven't actually re- released like any draft. It's just a discussion paper at the minute, but judging from the discussion paper, the rhetoric is exactly the same as what they've been saying since they got into government, and that is... We are looking to shift the burden of risk and responsibility from the government to the private sector. So that's their modus operandi. 
They want to offset risk and give it all to the private sector. Um, what that means is that they no longer have a responsibility to be a social landlord. So they, they give that responsibility to community housing providers who are all too happy because what they want is to expand their stock so that they have an economies of scale so that it stacks up financially for them. So it's in community community housing's interest to grow, and it's in the government's interest to grow them. So this it's all very good for the government. It's all very good for community housing. But who loses that is the tenants. So tenants throughout this process, in a renewal program, tenants are forcibly displaced. Um, so that's one major thing. Um, another thing is, yes, your rent goes up. And, and all those sorts of things. But another thing is that it doesn't actually grow the overall stock. So last year we had a 10% increase in formal need. So the Victorian Housing Register grew by 10%. Um, but yet public housing stock decreased. So we're not actually seeing any major addressing of the need out there in society. Um, in the last 20 years, overall stock has decreased. Um, in the last two years, public housing vacancy rates have increased. More houses have been demolished and built, and again, residents forcibly displaced in all of this. So it's really concerning to see that they're doubling down on their shift to privatize. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, they're just doubling down on their shift to privatize um, social housing, basically. And it's really concerning because it doesn't address need. The need is getting out of hand, and... With the pandemic that just happened, we're going to see a huge ballooning of need um, that we haven't seen in decades. That probably we haven't seen since um, since post World mm. War Two. Yeah, it's really really concerning, and I and I recommend that people. Um really keep an eye on this issue. So people should look up Save Public Housing Collective um, for more information. Thank you so so much for taking the time. No worries. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for today. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to 3CR uh, 855 AM Thursday Breakfast. We'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.